and we will get started. So my name is Chris, one of the pastors here. We, like I said, we're working our way through uh, this uh, book of the Bible called Acts, and so we are, uh, find ourselves here kind of in the middle of chapter two. It's actually interesting, and we're going we're gonna to preach a sermon on the sermon. And <laughs> so uh, we're going to look at really the first sermon the church ever preached uh, as it was gathered there from, uh, from Peter. So uh, let, me, um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be together. Um, I thank you just this morning seeing uh, faces I haven't seen in a while, knowing uh, being able to come back and be with us in person. Um, God, I thank you for that and the continued ab- ability and opportunity to have that. We pray that... Uh, someday, really soon, that, God, we'd all be back together again in person. But, God, I thank you that, uh, that even those who can't be here that are watching online right now, I uh, thank you for that as well. So, God, I just pray that, uh, that you would use your word in our life, that, God, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things. Lord, we want to see Jesus. He is what this is about. He is what we're about this morning. It's what the Bible's about. It's what the sermon's about. Um, and, God, I just pray that, um, that you would be high lifted up and that, uh, Lord, um, you'd be glorified and you would work in and through us and send us out today uh, rejoicing in the grace that we have received. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, well every company uh, strives to have a, a clear message and a mission as to why it exists and what it's trying to accomplish. For example, I'll give you a couple of them. Microsoft, uh, you may be familiar with, uh, is their statement is to enable people and businesses throughout the world to realize their full potential. Amazon, um, trying to figure out who they are actually. They're, they're, I don't know if you guys heard about the, uh, the Hitler-esque mustache there that they had to change, but the day after it came out, do you see the box with the mustache? And, okay, never mind. But anyway, they, they've changed it a couple of times. But Amazon has a mission statement. To, uh, it says, uh, to, be, to be Earth's most customer-centric company. Okay. Google. Google has uh, the, the mission statement to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. A couple more here. Coca-Cola has uh, the statement of to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. One more you may be familiar with. Walmart. We save people money so they can live better. Save money, yes. Live better? I don't feel like I live better when I go to Walmart, but that's something else. <laughs> Doesn't make me happy. Um, there's also, uh, sometimes companies have mission statements that are not so clear at times. Uh, one, of my, one of the ones I found this week looking up was uh, Hershey's, which I thought of a lot of different things that would be the mission statement, but theirs is, quote, undisputed marketplace leader. I was thinking like chocolate <laughs> or something. Um, and others have mission statements that they just don't follow at all. They actually have a mission of what they're about. For example, uh, you may remember this one, Enron. Here's... Here, sorry, here was their mission statement. Respect, integrity, communication, and excellence. How about none of those things, right? That was none of those things. But uh, so when it comes to the church, when we think about all these companies' mission statements, what is the church's mission statement? What is it to be about? What is to be the message that the church is to communicate? Um, you know, what, what is that message? Some churches, uh, if you've been in other churches or have been in churches before, there's some that communicate messages that are all very different. Some communicate a message of self-help, right? They want to help you feel better about yourself, maybe give you motivation to be a better you. Uh, there's others that communicate uh, messages of, of uh, good deeds and charity, uh, meaning they want you to contribute to society. They want you to, to help people in that way. 
There's others communicate uh, messages of political kind of advancement. They want you to support political parties or agendas or leaders, right? And there's all these different kind of messages and themes that are kind of pumping out of all these church buildings even this very morning. And so we ask the questions, we look at that with all these different missions and all these different messages, what does the Bible actually tell us should be our message? What is it that we should be about? And in our passage, Peter stands up amongst the, the 120 that gathered in that room, as we've seen the last few weeks, and we find, really, the church speak for the first time. The church speaks, Peter speaks, and in essence, he has a one-word mission statement. One thing that the church is to be about, and if you've been around us here uh, long enough, you would know the answer to this one. It's one word, it's Jesus, okay? That is what the church is supposed to be about. That, that shouldn't be shocking, Unfortunately, it has become more and more uncommon that Jesus is the theme and point and reason for existence for a local church these days. Another word the Bible uses, and you'll hear us use this word a lot, and it may be one you're not familiar with, uh, but it's another word to describe this is a word called gospel. Maybe you've heard that, or gospel music, or whatever. The, the word gospel, is, uh, it really summarizes the kind of central message of the Bible. It summarizes what Jesus came to do kind of gives a little more action to it. You say, what is the gospel? Well, the word just means good news, okay? It's good news. It's not good advice, and that's really important that you understand because there's a whole different way you can read the Bible and look at it as a bunch of good advice, right? Things for you to do, some people maybe you can emulate or try to avoid things that people do, right? No, don't do this and do this. Uh, follow these commands, don't follow these commands kind of thing. It's a, it, it's a, it's a book. It's a, it's a good news, not good advice. It's an announcement of something historical, something actual that has taken place, something that has been done for us. It's the good news is not a, it's not a command of something we are to do, but something that has been done. It's the truth of the Bible, and you hear me say this a lot, it's not about us and what we need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for us. That's, that's what it's about. That's a summary statement of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, died a death we should have died to, to save us and bring us into relationship with God. And that, that news, that statement, that historical fact changes everything. Uh, it changes the way you view the world. It changes the way you view people. It even changes the way you view yourself. And it's mission critical that the church gets the news right. It's important that we, as individuals even, get the news right, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Because as we see in the book of Acts, and we'll continue to see this, when Jesus brings you in, he sends you out, right? He brings you in, you understand the message, you, you grasp the gospel, you, you're all for Jesus, and you turn around, and now you're, you're going out to tell other people about that. We represent him. We are his heralds, his proclaimers, as it were. And so let's look at the gospel, all right? Let's look at the first sermon the church kind of ever preached here, and let's look at the, uh, we're going to look at here, five descriptions of the gospel, okay? We'll look at each one of them. It's historical, defensible, personal, Conditional and powerful, all right? So we're going to look at it. Number one, the gospel is historical. That's where we start, okay? It's historical. The gospel is first off about facts, okay? I brought this up just this last couple of weeks, right? It does not begin. The New Testament does not begin. The Bible itself doesn't even begin way back in Genesis with once upon a time 
or in a galaxy far, far away, right? It doesn't begin as some kind of fairy tale. Um, I told you before that the Gospel of Matthew, if you open it up, New Testament, first book, you're going, okay, what's it going to tell me? It starts off with a list of names. If you've never read it, look at it. Matthew 1, it's a Hebrew-like phone book, if you, you guys remember phone books, right? Just a list of just a bunch of different names, half of which you may not even be able to pronounce. You're like, why does it start that way? And then Luke, the writer of this book of Acts, begins his with, inasmuch as, and he kind of goes through, I've researched and I've, 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 I've got these witnesses, and it's given all this historical data. It may not, that may not be what you would think the Bible would begin with, but it does, and it's important because it begins with history. It begins with actual information, things that actually took place. Again, good news, not good advice. It's not a how-to manual. Um, that's why, again, the, the gospel, the Bible is based on historical events and why words are super important. So look at the, the text there, verse 22. It says, Peter stands up, says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and uh, wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Okay, so Peter begins with giving us historical information that Jesus, this Jesus person, was actually a person. Jesus Christ was a literal person. I told you when I grew up and didn't grow up going to church that I didn't know Jesus Christ was a real person. I thought that was a word I said when I got angry. I didn't even know that it had historical significance to it, okay? Completely lost, didn't have any idea of what that was. But here we find Peter beginning like this Jesus was an actual person. And his sermon starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. He becomes, again, the central figure, the protagonist, the hero of the story, and notice he begins by saying Jesus of Nazareth. You're like, why did he add that? Like, why, why does he need to describe where he grew up? Why did he do that? Well, it's because Peter wants to communicate that Jesus grew up near where this very audience lived, okay, near Jerusalem where he's speaking right now. Jesus actually had a home. He actually had a town that he grew up in. What Peter is saying here is that Jesus didn't appear out of thin air, okay? He didn't appear out of thin air one day. He didn't arrive via spaceship one day, via uh, Bifrost or via a sling ring created by a portal with Dr. Strange, right? He didn't do any, he didn't create, come through those ways at all. He was born. He was human. That's what Peter is beginning with. He was a human being. Um, this is important to start here because it means unlike the gods that the people um, who, who understood them, their gods to kind of, they remained silent or they remained distant or they remained detached from humanity, uh, kind of up and away. The God of the Bible, here we find out, left everything to live among us. Uh, many people, even today, they think of God. Uh, they imagine someone up in the sky, it's kind of what Justin was saying, Pastor Justin was saying earlier, you know, imagine someone in the sky, maybe uh, very detached, um, you know, he's, he's, he's sending out commands, and we shrink back under the weight of hoping to do enough to outweigh the bad, you know, the divine scales, we hope we'll, we'll outdo if we do enough good to outweigh the bad, and he'll be okay with us, maybe he'll love us, or maybe at least he'll give us a pass, right? I really tried, God, I hope, I hope this was good enough, right? And this is, we kind of live this life of just hoping that we've done enough, but the gospel, the story of the Bible, is so we have a creator who didn't stay detached, a God who came down. The creator was among his creation, right? So he who became rich, who was rich, became poor. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. Think about this. The God of the universe who created all things was born in a feeding trough for animals, born to a poor family, lived in a poor city. He owned nothing. He himself would say he had no place to lay his head, right? He, uh, his last week of his life, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey, 
He was, uh, we find himself actually eating his meal, his last meal in a borrowed room. And when he died on a cross, he was then buried in a borrowed tomb, right? I mean, this was, this was his whole life. This is crazy. Why did he do all this? Why? Well, why all that? Why, why giving up all these things? Well, first of all, it wasn't because he just wanted to see what it was like to be human. It wasn't just like, you know, this is interesting. I created these people. Let me go see what it's like to kind of live, live like them. It wasn't because he was there to set a good example for us. He did it because we could never reach him, okay? That's why he did it, because we would never work our way towards him. Um, he did it because we can't remove the stain on our soul. Nobody can remove the stain that's deep inside. Our service won't remove the stain. More education won't remove the stain. Uh, more money will not remove. Giving away more money won't remove the stain. Only Jesus can remove the stain. And he had to be born and live our life in order to do so. Peter then moves into that part about Jesus' life. So he goes from he was born, he was human, Jesus of Nazareth. He, was, he also talks about his life. He lived his life like no other human being ever lived. He lived it perfectly. He obeyed everything that God ever required of us. And he says God put Jesus on display. If you notice in the text there, he was attested or put on display. In other words, he didn't hide out. Um, he was out in the open for all people to see. Jesus didn't hide in a special place up in a lofty you know, tower somewhere, and people, maybe if they got lucky enough, could come in and have a special audience with him. Right? We read the Gospels. We just went through Matthew. He was with the people, right? He was walking among them, rubbing shoulders with people, and especially the people that most would think at the time shouldn't have any access to someone like him, right? Um, and he talks about here he, was, uh, he did miracles, and those miracles that he did, were they weren't just for show. I told you this before, too. He didn't, he didn't do things because they were like, wow, look what I can do. This is spectacular, right? He didn't do things for the sake of just the wow effect, he did things to show, A, that he was God, but B, he did things to show what he was going to do, that one day he was going to make all things new. He was going to put things back together again that were broken, right? He made eyes see again, ears hear again, right? He made, made lips speak again. Like, he, he brought, he made people who were dead back to life again. Like, he, he was foretelling what he was going to do ultimately in the future. Peter then moves on to Jesus' death. Look at verse 23. This Jesus now delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this Jesus, whom many thought at the time was just kind of an ordinary guy, uh, maybe a good teacher at best, it was this Jesus that Peter says was delivered up to die on a plan by God himself. God offered his own son on the altar in our place. No doubt for many of these people who, who, are, who were Jewish and grew up with a, with a copy, with a, at least their local synagogue had a copy of the scriptures, a scroll, would read it, would understand the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? That Abraham offered up his son, remember, uh, Isaac? That Jesus is the true and better Isaac here, who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was actually sacrificed for us. God didn't hold back in this case. This means, now what, what does all this mean? This means that Jesus' death was not an accident, Jesus' death was not plan B or plan C or whatever. It was plan A. It was the only way that God could get rid of the sin without getting rid of us. It was the only way that God could remove the stain, right? It's the only way God could destroy sin without destroying us in the process. It had to be taken on. And this is when Peter says here, he says it was 
according to the foreknowledge of God. You say, what does that mean? It's not, it's not that God was like looking down the quarters of time and going like, hmm, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, so I guess we'll do this. The idea of the word foreknowledge is actually to predetermine. In other words, the day Jesus died, think about it this way, the day Jesus died was a day circled on the divine calendar before the world was even created. This was all part of the plan. This was exactly going according to what it was supposed to do. And so what looked like a tragedy that day on a cross was actually a triumph. And what looked to be a disastrous plan was actually a very deliberate plan. Uh, what looked to be a, a setback was actually sovereignty at work that day. This idea of Jesus dying by divine design is all over Luke's writings. He wrote the Gospel of Luke in Acts. Let's look at a couple of these verses. He says, Luke 22, verse 22 says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. This was Jesus himself speaking. It is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan. Luke, uh, same chapter, 22, verse 37. Jesus said, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's from Isaiah. Jesus saying, yeah, this is all going according to plan. It's going to fulfill the scriptures exactly as it was told. Uh, here in the book of Acts, later on, next chapter, chapter 3, verse 18, says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus Fulfilled. Acts 4, verse 27, 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. One more, Acts 17, verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, on a three-day Sabbath, uh, on, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is a running theme throughout Luke's writings. It was all according to plan. Yet, even though it was according to plan, notice that we didn't, we didn't get off on that one, right? Uh, it says here that though it was sovereignly planned by God, we are still responsible. Human beings are still responsible. Peter tells us that the, the Father planned the death of Jesus, and people may have at that time breathed a sigh of relief in that sense, but then he says that they actually killed Jesus, okay? Look at verse 24. He moves on to talk about he did just die. He rose again. He says in verse 24, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God raised him up, set him free from death. And he gives us a reason. The reason that the father did that was because it was impossible that death would keep him. Why? Because Jesus was and is and will always be God himself. He was proven at the resurrection. You understand what Peter is saying to this crowd was absolutely shocking. Right? It was shocking to the audience that he was speaking to, to speak of God this way, to speak of, of God rising from the dead in the middle of history, right? For, for a Jewish person, no, no Jewish person at this time believed that a single person would be raised from the grave in the middle of history while the rest of humanity continued to be burdened by sickness and death. Like for them, they, they had a belief in resurrection for sure. You can see in the Old Testament but if, the, if, if God's going to be, if there's a resurrection, then everything has got to be made perfect at that point. They had, they had no concept for this one individual in the middle of history. Greeks thought, I mean, think about these guys. They, they actually had a belief system that the soul, the immaterial part of you is good, and the external, the body, the physical part of you is bad. And so their whole mission in life and was really to, their, their ultimate goal was to get out of the body, right? So when you die, it was like, all right, we're finally freed of this kind of, this kind of jail I've been walking around in. And so for them, 
to come back to life physically was like completely unheard of. Like, who would want that kind of thing? So, for, so this story is, is completely shocking for the people to hear. And this, this is interesting. So if this, wasn't the, so if this wasn't the audience, if this wasn't what the audience wanted to hear, this didn't, make any, this didn't fit any of their worldviews, then why is Peter sharing this information? Answer, because it happened. <laughs> because it was, it was historical. Because it took place. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually happened. So don't think as you open your mouth and speak about Jesus that somehow, you know, people aren't going to respond. 3,000 people here responded, and it didn't fit any of their worldviews. It wasn't like they were primed for this kind of thing. This was God at work. Number two, the gospel is defensible as well. So Peter not only gives facts, says it's historical, but he also gives defense of it. We call this, um, kind of in theology, we call this apologetics. That's a very strange word, maybe. The word sounds like you're apologizing for something, but that's not what we're doing in apologetics. Apologetics, we're, to, we're trying to give reason. We're trying to defend the, the, the historical data, the information. Okay, that's what apologetics means. That's what Peter kind of does here. All right? So he has uh, noticed that he took what they held as authoritative, the Old Testament scriptures, the scrolls there, and he argued from them. And that's why he starts quoting David here and goes on starting into verse 25. Talk about the fulfillment of prophecy. So verse 25, it says here that David says, this is Peter speaking of David in the Old Testament. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul. He says here, let your Holy One see corruption. So Peter uses the Old Testament because if you remember, Jesus, remember had the the post-resurrection Bible study? where he, he showed them all the scriptures explaining himself. Luke 24 kind of lays it out for us. And what, it, what, what Peter understands is that David is not the hero of his own writings here. David's not the hero of the Old Testament. There, is, there are no heroes in the Old Testament. Really, there's only villains, okay? If you go back and read it, read it closely, you're gonna find that there are really no heroes there. Um, there's only one hero in the Bible, and that's, that's Jesus. And so Peter says, in essence, it is impossible for death to keep Jesus because of what David said about him hundreds of years ago. That's what he's arguing about. The point is, the end, and he's quoting here Psalm 16, the end of the Psalm 16 that Peter is quoting from can't be talking about David, right? David saying, you, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus that was to come, right? And basically... <laughs> Peter talks about, look, David's body is seeing corruption, right? It, it, it has become worm food buried in some kind of cave somewhere. There's probably some guide out there in the audience at the time with his brochures. He could take you to the graveside be like, for a fee, I will show you where David is, right? He is dead as a doorknob. He is not coming back. He is seeing corruption. He is worm food in the cave, okay? He is not here. So what David said about not seeing corruption can't be about him. Does that make sense? It can't be about himself. He's speaking of Jesus. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence, here he says, that uh, David, he's both buried, he died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would see, set one of his descendants on a throne, he foresaw, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Right? So these guys had, had put their stock in, in an earthly David, the audience. Many of them upheld People like Abraham and David, right, Moses, these are our saviors. 
These are the people that if, that, that, if we, that if we emulate and if we live like them, we will hope to reach the heights of heaven one day if we're good enough. And so they put their stock in an earthly David, but that David couldn't save them. They needed to put stock in a true and better David who didn't stay in the grave but rose again, conquering death. Right? Putting hope in David as a model for winning God's attention was futile. Why? Because David didn't even do that. Go back and read his story. He wasn't a model to necessarily emulate. There was lots of failures and blemishes and sin in David's life. David was a man after God's own heart, as the scripture says, not because he was a good old boy, but because he loved the gospel. He hoped in the gospel. He hoped in Jesus who was to come. Read Romans 4, read Hebrews 11. David's hope was looking forward just like everybody else was, just like we look back, they looked forward. So look at verse 34. He says, look, David didn't ascend into the heavens, Right? He didn't, he didn't, not only did he not resurrect, but he didn't go into heaven either. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So Peter kind of assumes some objections. This is a good argument here. The people are still banking on David and their keeping of the law for their own righteousness. But now he quotes from another psalm, Psalm 2. And Peter says David isn't the one sitting on the throne in heaven right now. He didn't even, he didn't even ascend, he descended into a grave. He isn't the one whose enemies are going to be put down. He isn't the one who's, who's, uh, who's, who's going to be doing that. It's all speaking of Jesus. He's, again, what the Old Testament is about. He's what life is about. He's what righteousness, where righteousness is found, where that stain is removed. It's not from David, my friends. It doesn't come from him. It doesn't come from religion. It, it doesn't come from heritage. It doesn't come from your family, your parents, or where you grew up, or any of those things. It comes from Jesus. You need Jesus as your righteousness. They, the audience, and you need a righteousness not of your own making. You need something outside of you, a righteousness given to you from the outside. You need someone to stand in the gap, as it were, to stand next to the Father who is in heaven and say, that one's mine. He's mine. She's mine kind of thing. Now, you say, well, these guys you're, you're talking about in this audience were helplessly religious people. Right, I don't care that much for this righteousness. I don't even know what that means. Um, why would I need righteousness? And here's the thing. You know, we're in church. We're using kind of Bible church words here. But, but think about this. You, you want righteousness, no matter what you think about that. You want to be approved. You want to be told that you're okay. Right? Same idea. You want, right, you want to be declared right. That's what the word righteousness is. I want to, want to, want to be known that I'm okay. You want someone or something outside of you to validate your life, to know that your life meant something, don't you? Going back, all the way back to, um, this is a, it goes back a little bit, some of you young people may not remember this movie, but uh, Rocky, remember Rocky? And remember, remember Rocky telling Adrian, she's trying to convince him not to go to the ring, and he says, I got to go all the way so that I know I'm not a bum, <laughs> that's what he said. I got to go all the way, and if it kills me, I got to do this so that I know I'm not a bum. And that's really a de declaration, I want to be righteous. <laughs> I want to know I'm okay. I want to know I, that when I live my life, when it's over, that I, that I did enough. We all want that. And that's what the Bible speaks of, what righteousness in that way. The world tells you that you can find this righteousness. That you just need to believe in yourself, right? You need to be your own, your own man, your own woman, and you can do it. And you know what? That's, that's a lie. And you know that's a lie. <laughs> You need to be validated on the outside. You need a word from the outside. We are held captive by the little gods of approval and validation and significance around us. 
We rise and fall on the opinions of others. You know, you know what it's like. You know, think about what it's like to, to go a while when no one seems to like you, right? No one likes your posts, right? No one texts you. Uh, no one snaps you, whatever that means, right? No, one's, uh, no one thinks you're, you're cool or you're funny or you're smart or you're athletic or that you've got it all together. And you, 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 you don't get those opinions of others and you start to kind of crumble. She's like, I need, I need that validation. I need to know that I'm doing all right, that I'm, o, I'm okay. We start to worry about our righteousness. In um, Helen, Helen Fielding's book some years ago called Bridget Jones' Diary, the main char- character Bridget shared her New Year's resolutions, all right? Here, here they were. Here's our three New Year's resolutions. Number one, she said, I need to buy books by unreadable literary authors to put impressively on my shelves. Maybe I've done that. Number two, she said, I need, to, I need to develop inner poise and authority and sense of self as a woman, complete without boyfriends, since this is the very best way to obtain boyfriend. Number three, she says, be assured, receptive, responsive woman of substance, Knowing my sense of self comes not from other people, but from, from, my sense of self comes from myself? She goes, wait, that can't be right. That doesn't make any sense. This is, this is that postmodern lie that you can create yourself, you can find your identity in yourself without any need of validation from the outside. But you, need, you know you need that. You need a word, an opinion from the outside. And listen, if we so desperately need someone to tell us that we're okay, doesn't that logically mean that we're not? <laughs> doesn't that mean there's something wrong on the inside, right? This is why we need righteousness. We need a declaration of okayness, <laughs> a word that we are accepted from the outside, not from within ourselves. We need to hear that deep down, that kind of acceptance, not just from a, a friend or a family member, not even someone that you hold in high respect or high regard. I mean, those are, those are great and those are good to have, but they can't remove the stain, right? And, and their opinions tend to be fickle, right? And they tend to come and go and change with time. Plus, we know that no matter how well someone knows us, they don't, they don't really know us, right? I mean, they don't know us all the way to the bottom, And if they really did, there's this deep fear that if people really did know us all the way to the bottom, they'd leave us, right? And they wouldn't want to be near us. So we need a word from God, who does know us all the way to the bottom better than we know ourselves. We need to know that the stain is removed down down deep in the soul. We need righteousness. We need to know that we're okay. We need to know that we're accepted by the God of the universe. And that's what Jesus can do. That's all this argument that Peter is making Jesus can do that because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He can do what no other human being can do. He can do more than David. He can do more than your friends. He can do more than any person. And, he doesn't, and there's the thing. He doesn't just go, what? He doesn't go, you know what? You're okay. Stamp, right? You're approved. Next. <laughs> he doesn't take what you've done and go, let's just sweep that under the cosmic rug of the universe and we'll just pretend like that didn't happen. No, that's not, that's not what it means to give you. He doesn't just say, hey, you're right. He gives you his rightness. He gives you his righteousness for you. Now you're approved because you've received his righteousness. You see what, see what I'm saying? That's what, it, that's what this is all about. He actually gives you his approval, his righteousness to wear, and he can do that because he is resurrected and he has ascended and he has conquered death and sin. Number three, the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. The, uh, this good news, okay, Important you understand this. This good news is good news 
because there's bad news. Yes, we have to talk about bad news, okay? But it's not good if there's not bad news, right? I mean, you have to understand the difference, what's good about it. it the, in other words, the gospel has to hit us personally. We have to understand that we stand before a holy God before this will ever make good news. So look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <laughs> Peter tells them that they had a part in killing Jesus. And think about this. The audience he's talking to, remember we talked about this is Pentecost time, celebration time. People from outside the city have come in to celebrate the 50th day, the harvest time, all that stuff. Most of the people listening, guess what? They weren't even there when Jesus died. They weren't physically there. And so I'm sure they're going like, wait a minute, like, how did we do that? <laughs> I, didn't put the, I didn't have the hammer in my hands. I didn't hold the nails that were driven in. I didn't take the body off the cross. I didn't divide up his clothes and do all those things. I wasn't a witness. I didn't even see it. How, how am I guilty? How is that possible? This is why we talk about sin. Sin, human, human sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross, okay? That's what nailed him to the cross. Men, men couldn't keep him there. He could have easily come down. They even asked him that. Remember on the, when he was dying at the cross, the people said, hey, if you're God, why don't you come on down and prove it? He sure could have, <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't because he was there. He was held up there by sin and stayed there for the love for, love for us, right? He went all the way through that to die for us. This is, in essence, as Peter says here, basically he calls the entire audience and us today murderers. That's not very easy to take, but that's exactly what he said. It's why we do everything we can to avoid or suppress the guilt that we feel deep down. We all, kind of like uh, Jason Bourne, are trying desperately to scrub the, scrub the blood off our hands at the same time looking in the mirror going, who, who am I? What's going on? It's the reason some come to church. It's the reason some try to do some good deeds. It's the reason others seek to give some money away. What are they trying to do? They're trying to use religion, okay, and religious activities to avoid God. Think about that. Trying to use religious activities to avoid God. In other words, if I do enough good stuff, I'll get him off my back, right? He'll, maybe he'll get mad at somebody else and not me, and my life will get better if I do good things. So what people think. Flannery O'Connor put it this way when her character says, there was, a, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was just to avoid sin. <laughs> He's like, okay, if I can just try not to sin and try to do things really good, maybe I can avoid him. Maybe I don't have to deal with him, get him off my back kind of thing. So look, verse 37, and when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. Interesting word, cut to the heart, the same word Luke uses in the Gospels to refer to Jesus when he was actually bound to a stake and was beaten with, with the, 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 the rod of the, um, the cattails, right, when he was beaten there before he was crucified. Same word to be bound there to, to receive that blow is the same word to be cut to the heart. There's a cut on his back, same, same word. This is speaking of um, conviction, right? That's what this is. This is conviction. This is feeling being cut to the heart of the personal involvement that you have had with the crucifixion of Jesus. It's not just something that happened. It's not just something that just occurred it's not something that I'm glad occurred for me type thing. It's good. It's something that I caused, right? It's taking ownership of that. That's what conviction is. I had a piece in this, right? You know what conviction is. I, I felt, I remember the, the, the conviction I had when I was 16 um, was not a Christian. I was a juvenile 
delinquent, but I remember the feeling of being 16, looking out my window and seeing the state trooper pull into my driveway. Uh-oh, right? I, I have been busted, right? This is not going, and felt this deep sense of like, oh no, I'm in deep trouble. That's a conviction type feeling. That's what Peter's getting after. Have you felt this way before God? Have you been broken over your sin of nailing Jesus to a cross? This is where repentance starts. This is where change begins to take place. This is where conversion starts, realizing that you put Jesus to death. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your family members, not even your, your enemies put him. It was you it was the reason Jesus had to die. All right? Paul would say something in 1 Timothy 1.15, kind of his own personal mission statement he would talk about as... Um, talked about why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It doesn't say of whom I have the most needs. It says Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, right? I'm the foremost. Uh, it's me, right? It's me. Christian and non-Christian alike, this truth is for you. You won't ever turn to Jesus, be saved, till you feel this. And as a Christian, you won't really grow till you sense this, right? This is why we go back to the cross. This is why we talk about Jesus. We go back to the gospel. We go like, okay, this is where change occurs. I've got to remember my, my part in this. Uh, Thomas Watson, old Puritan, put it this way. He says, till, till sin be bitter, grace won't be sweet, right? Till sin be bitter, grace, it won't be sweet. Number four, the gospel is conditional, all right? Let's do some work on this one because this can be mis misread. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter tells them to repent. Now, there's a, there's a very Bible church word, right? Repent. Like what, you're like, what does that mean? It's actually a Greek word. Um, it's called metanoia. It means to, to change your mind. It's sort of the idea. It's the idea of turning, okay? Um, and it's more than just being sorry or, or feeling bad. It, it is a, almost a... a, a a resolution of turning, right? I'm, I'm going to turn my back on myself. I'm going to betray myself, as it were. You say, what, is, what does that mean? Sometimes it's helpful to go back and to understand a little bit of how people have defined sin in previous generations to help us kind of understand it because sometimes we get lost in the, in, in the words. There was an old Latin phrase uh, to describe the sin nature of, of human beings, and this is what it was. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's called incurvitus inse. Okay, incurvitus inse. What the word means, it means turn inward on oneself. Turned inward on oneself is how they defined, hundreds of years ago, how they defined sin. Augustine, in his book City of God, said, kind of coined this phrase back in you know, 400 AD. He said we had this inward curve, right, that was made to be an outward kind of line. This, this as line has gone out and we curve it back onto ourselves, it was supposed to go out and be directed towards God and others. And instead, the energy that we have going out from us, instead of going out to others and to God, we've curved those back. That's what it means to be curved back in on ourselves. Um, we, had this, we have this, this inward curve, this turn, this bent back towards ourselves. And the inward turn towards oneself does not merely destroy an individual, it destroys the very fabric of society. And so in our pride, we attempt to make ourselves our own God, the ground of our own existence. Yet because we're not created with this capacity to be grounded in ourselves as if we are God, we go back to seek some form of validation and justification from others. This irresistible need to be validated by others results in abandoning our duty to love one's neighbor and also the unraveling of community. So of serving people, Loving people, instead of submitting to the interest of others, 
uh, instead of our own, like we were designed to do, we end up using people to our own selfish ends, right? We turn that back onto ourselves. So when Peter calls us to repent, it's to acknowledge and own this bentness of the soul, okay? That's what we're talking about it. I'm gonna own that, yes, I was, I'm supposed to be loving others and loving God. Instead, I've turned that back onto myself, right? Um, it's, uh, it's that ownership, that resolution that is repentance. And then the other side of the coin is faith. And that, what is that? Well, that's the belief that we can't fix ourselves, that we can't fix the bent, that we need salvation, we need deliverance. So we turn, we repent, and then we trust in Jesus. That's what that is, repent and trust. And listen, this is not just for those who don't know Christ. Right? This isn't just for conversion uh, type thing. This is for entering, and not just for entering a relationship with God, it's actually for all of life. Martin Luther, uh, way back in the uh, 1500s, uh, had this infamous day in 1519 where he nailed a, nailed a thesis that he had, 95 of these little theses on, on the paper on this door of a church in Wittenberg. And his number one, out of all those 95 that he wrote, number one said, all of life is repentance. All of it. Not just, not just one moment. <laughs> all of life is repentance. What was he saying? This means that, this means that as, even as Christians, we still repent. We, we, we repent not just for the things that you do or you don't do, but for why you do them or don't do them. It also means we repent of our own righteousness. That may be new for you. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You say, what does that mean to repent of your own righteousness? It's, it's the idea that we've, we've used our activities, our, our acts, to build up a kind of moral, spiritual uh, resume that we kind of lean on. Like, I'm okay because I'm a good person. We, we could break right into that as a Christian, right? You can start thinking that way. Well, I'm doing all right because I've done this activity and that activity. I read my Bible and I prayed and I went to church, so all right, I'm good, right? And it's like the repentance is like repenting not just of the things that we did that are wrong. It's repenting of the things that we did that are right for the wrong reasons. We're leaning on them, right? That's what we're talking about. So as a Christian, you're not repenting to atone for your sin. It's been atoned for. You're not working yourself up into emotional frenzy, hoping to be worthy of being forgiven. You're already forgiven. You're not repenting to make yourself acceptable to God. You're already acceptable to God. As a Christian, you're repenting of what your sin did to Jesus. You're removing, repenting of your removing Jesus and his gospel from the center of your heart, right? Now, what about this baptism thing? Paul, uh, Peter mentions this here. Like, what's going on with that? It's after repentance. It's after faith. It's after forgiveness, after conversion. It's an outward demonstration of what has happened inwardly. It's a public profession of a private profession. You can kind of put it that way. It's declaring publicly that you're for Jesus, right? It's your owning the bitterness, re resolving to follow Jesus, love him and others, and then baptism. Baptism does not forgive sin. It does not remove the stain. Matter of fact, Peter would clarify this in chapter 3, his next sermon he preaches, verse 19. Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Right? You turn, you're saved, and then you're baptized as a result. Water doesn't save anyone. But baptism does follow very closely afterwards. As a matter of fact, outside of maybe the, the thief on the cross illustration or, or example, um, you won't find an unbaptized follower of Jesus. Like you go through the book of Acts and people got saved and they came to Jesus, they got baptized. They were together. Why? Think about the audience especially. In the Jewish audience who are listening to this, they had a form of baptism. Do you know that? And their baptism was for people who were Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, who wanted to convert to Judaism. And guess what they had to do to convert to Judaism? 
get baptized. And that would mean publicly you're admitting that you don't have it all together. Publicly you're admitting that we've got it right, you've got it wrong kind of idea. So for Peter to say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to get baptized, it's like, hold on a second. So you mean I gotta publicly admit that I'm wrong? <laughs> I gotta publicly admit like, like these Gentiles do? I, I gotta jump in with them somehow? And so there was this idea, this public profession was important to understand for them to really own that which own their own sin, okay? That's what was going on. Number, uh, last, number five, the gospel is powerful, okay? Powerful. It says here in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter says that the gospel brings about here two things he talks about, forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, when someone comes, uh, becomes a Christian, something legal takes, takes place. That's what he's talking about. Something legal here. They are accepted as sinless and perfect. Their record wiped clean, stained permanently removed, right? Based on Christ's righteousness. Second, they experience something experiential here that takes place. They get new life. They get new power. They get a new direction. This is the life of the Holy Spirit. So verse 41 says, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can we go back to the situation for a minute? Put yourself into the shoes of these sandals, I guess. They didn't have shoes. Sandals of these guys listening to this. Can you imagine being the 120? You've been cooped up in that room, remember, for 10 days. Fire, wind come. You freak out because you think you're going to die. <laughs> All of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, you start speaking a different language for people to hear about Jesus. And like, oh, this is kind of a crazy experience. And after all that's over, Peter stands up, starts to talk about Jesus, how he's the point of the whole Bible and the point of all of life. And all of a sudden, 3,000 people go, we're for Jesus too. Let, we're in. Let's do this. <laughs> Can you imagine being 120 going like, we just got outnumbered pretty significantly. Like that's, I knew Jesus said that, you know, things were going to, you know, he was going to use us to the end of the world, but not quite to this, this level. I mean, we're pretty sure, based on, we'll see this later in the book of Acts, we're pretty sure that, that this, this message of the gospel, this, this response of 3,000, many of them went back to their homes, went back to the places where they were from. And many of them, as we looked at last week from the map, were from even all the way out as far as Rome to the then known world out in Italy. And we, we find out later in Acts that there's a church without Peter getting there, without Paul getting there. Churches started in Rome somehow. How did it start? Probably right here. <laughs> These guys went back to their homes, went back to their places, they did exactly what Peter did. Next thing you know, churches are started and things, things begin to grow. This is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of the spread of the gospel to all nations, from people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. From here, at this moment in history, Christianity would go from about 120 to a few thousand. And then by, by 100 AD, 40,000 or so. By 150, 220,000. By 200 AD, a million. By 250 AD, 6 million by 300 AD, 34 million, which was 60% of the population, just blew up, right? And it spread. This is because of the gospel. This is because of the message. It's all because the church was about Jesus. It was about his agenda, not about themselves and their own agendas. Societies would be changed. Cultures would be changed. The world would be changed because Jesus was and is alive, they actually lived, and he actually died, and he actually rose again, and he actually ascended. It really happened. It wasn't because Jesus was a good teacher. It wasn't because Jesus was a good prophet. It wasn't because Jesus was a good example. It wasn't because Jesus was inspiring for us to go live a good life. That wasn't what it was about. 
It was about Jesus living, dying, and rising again, right? And that truth, historical fact, changed the world. There was an interview some years ago, and uh, Pastor Jared, you'll appreciate this one, uh, with Bono, actually, called Grace Over Karma. And, uh, and in that uh, story, he was asked by the interviewer why he thought Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or a good prophet. Here's Bono's words. <laughs> here's how he put it. Very C.S. Lewis-like, but in his own way. All right, here's what we put. He said, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, he said, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word. Because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no. No, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. <laughs> but actually, I'm the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their, toe, at their shoes and says, Oh, oh, he says, oh my God, here, here, he's, he's going to keep saying this. And so what you're left with is either Christ is who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was like some of the people we've been talking about earlier. This man was strapping himself to a bomb. He had king of the Jews on his head, and they were, they were putting him up on the cross and was going, okay, martyrdom, here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. That's far-fetched, right? No, this, this is about the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a real historical event. It's not about a good teacher. It's not about being a good prophet. It's not about good things he said to inspire you. It's about the historical facts. And when you embrace those historical facts that Jesus died for you, that you are the one, right, the reason why he died, but, he, but he, you're not just the reason why he died. His love for you is why he stayed there, right? And went through it all for you and rose again, transforms you from the inside out. So how, how does the gospel meet you where you are today? How does the story of Christ meet you where you are with all the things swirling around you this week and what's coming up? How does it affect you today? What does your soul need to hear about Jesus and his grace today? What do you need to repent of, as we talked about? What do you need to turn from? How's that bent Right in terms, of, in terms of turning it towards God and others instead of ourselves. As we go to communion, there's little cups there. There's juice and there's bread inside. If you're a follower of Christ, we're going to take a moment in quiet to kind of reflect on all the things that have been said in this passage and how the gospel affects our lives. So take a moment in quiet. Don't open it yet, okay? You can hold it. You can keep it there. I don't care what you do, but just, just don't open it yet. And when you're ready, when you've reflected and responded to God in a moment, this is your time to kind of pray and talk to God, you may take the bread and the juice, right? It's representation. It's kind of showing us uh, a physical kind of example of the, the body of Jesus that was broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. So we leave here today remembering Jesus, not ourselves, not about our performances or lack thereof, but about his performance, right, and how that changes us. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you. Um, but, but uh, we'd be happy to, to talk with you, and you're welcome to speak to God even right now uh, in the quiet of your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to be together. Thank you for this um, message that Peter gave. 
I know it's pretty heady and can be pretty academic at times, and yet, God, it's historical facts and it's words that are important. We've got to get the gospel right. We've got to be about Jesus and not about our own personal agendas. God, because only then will we move. Only then will we actually be motivated by the grace we have received to go out into a world that's lost, that's dying, that's suffering and broken, and be, and be the mouth of Jesus, be your feet and hands, and be able to proclaim that true gospel story, the good news that you lived the life we couldn't live and that you died to death we should have died to save us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.